Well, let's go ahead in our Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 14. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen some pretty amazing things in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 14, at the start, we saw a group of people having a dinner with Jesus. We had the privilege of attending ourselves and listening in. And in that dinner, we learned that in all of life, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. The joy of humility is you get to understand who you are before the Lord. And its fruit is faith in the Lord Jesus, which changes your life. And in Luke chapter 15 that we saw last week, we saw the prodigal son. And the reality that when we do put our faith in Jesus, God the Father in his grace runs towards us. And we saw God's great heart for the lost. He's not peering out upon the world, despising everybody in it, but he is looking for all those that may walk towards him. And when they do, he runs towards them with rejoicing. It's such a precious thing in the word of God. But right here in this chapter, in this part of scripture, in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35, we really have the cost of following Jesus, which is my title today. It's like sandwiched in the middle of this dinner and this wonderful story of the prodigal son. And it's almost like Jesus wants to slow us down as he addresses us as part of the crowd. And he wants us to understand, listen, if you're going to follow me, If the Father's going to run towards you like that, if you're truly going to humble yourself and put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, there's something you need to understand. And what you need to understand is that decision is really going to cost you. This is a hard-hitting text. It is an honest text. It's one of those texts that maybe if we weren't preaching through books of the Bible, you would avoid because it has difficult things in it. It's one of the things I love about expositional preaching. It forces you to tell the congregation what is in front of you. And Jesus wants our attention this morning. This is the word of God. So we're going to read chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. Then we'll pray and then we'll dive in. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. 
Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you that you are addressing us this morning as your people. You are gathering us against around you today as a great crowd. Because you want to speak to each and every one of us. the something you want us to know. Lord, I pray this morning for each of us, would we have ears to hear today? Would we hear what you are telling us? Would we understand it? Would we heed it? Would we count the cost? And would it all be for your glory, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Annie Dillard, in her essay, An Expedition to the Pole, describes oh so well the ill-fated Sir John Franklin expedition of 18. It was an expedition to the Arctic that went horribly wrong, and it went horribly wrong for some specific reasons. This is what she writes. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two three-mast ships, Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two to three years voyage. Instead of additional coal, according to L.P. Kerwin, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library each, an hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and a sterling silver flatware. The officers' sterling silver knives, forks, and spoons were particularly interesting. The silver was ornate Victorian design, very heavy at the handles and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crest. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. The ship set out in high seas amid enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound. He reported back to England on the high spirits of the officers and men, yet he was the last European to see see any one of them alive. Years later, civilization learned that many groups of Eskimos had hazarded across members of the Franklin expedition. Some had glimpsed, for instance, at a place called Starvation Cove, a wooden boat and the remains of 35 men who had been dragging it. At Terra Bay, the Eskimos had found a tent on the ice and in it some 30 bodies. At Simpson Strait, some Eskimos saw a very odd sight as the pack had been pierced by three protruding wooden masts. For 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from all over the frozen Arctic. Accompanying one clump of frozen bodies were place settings of sterling silver flatware engraved with officers' initials and family crests. Another search party found two skeletons in a boat on a sledge. The boat had been hauled some 65 miles, and with the boat were chocolates, some guns, some tea, and a great deal of table silver. Many miles south of this was another skeleton, alone. He was a frozen officer, still in uniform, Trousers and jacket of fine blue cloth, edged with silk braid and with sleeves slashed and bearing five covered buttons each. Over this uniform, the dead man had worn a blue coat with a fine black silk handkerchief in it. Yet he too was just a skeleton. For all had perished. Sir Franklin and the 138 men perished 
Not because they were bad sailors or crew, but because they were simply totally unprepared for what was about to come their way. As they had it out on this journey, they assumed that it was going to be easy, that it was going to be comfortable, it was going to be plush. They had no idea that it was going to be difficult, that it was going to be hard, that it was going to be costly. They thought that they were going out for a few months, in effect, to the English Officers Club in Portsmouth. Yet instead, they were going to the Arctic, and they were completely unprepared for what was about to take place. They didn't perish because they were bad sailors. They perished because they were totally unprepared for the journey that they were about to embark on. And as Jesus addresses the crowd in this moment, he eagerly wants to ensure that all would-be followers of him in the crowd don't make the same mistake. See, there is no doubt that following Jesus is not some walk in the park. There's no doubt that following Jesus is not like a fun run for Jesus. It's not a day out at the beach. There are things that are attached to following Jesus that are difficult, that are hard, that are costly. And he wants us to know it. And the one thing he wants the crowd to understand then is this moment is simply this, that following him really does cost. I have three points in this morning, all taken from the text, but really just one hope. And it's the hope that for every individual in the room this morning, by the time we leave, we understand, if I'm going to follow Jesus, it is not going to be easy. There are going to be things about it that are hard, and whatever my path is, it will cost me. I want to help you understand from Scripture, it will be totally worth it. It is a wonderful thing to know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But I don't want anybody misunderstanding that it's going to be some easy, comfortable, plush plush walk, because it is not. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us here, as he helps us understand that following him really does cost. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the cost of following Jesus. It's going to cost. And he tells us point blank from verse 25 through to 27. This is what he says. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, these are hard-hitting words, are they not? He's not He's not saying, hey, this is like an optional extra. He's saying, no, no, if you want to follow me, you have to be doing this. This is like a bare minimum of what it means to put your faith in me as your Savior and Lord. See, make no mistake, friends, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, in that moment, boom, there is great rejoicing going on in heaven because of one sinner that repents. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, in that moment we are forgiven of our sin and adopted into the family of God. And we can know that heaven is our home. It is all through faith alone. But what the Bible wants to help us see and what Jesus wants to help us see right here is where that faith is real and genuine, it will never be alone. That faith, if you've really got to your knees and said, I take you as my king, as my leader, 
then that faith will bear fruit. And that faith will bear followership. It will be a life that says, I'm so grateful, Jesus, for what you've done. I just want to live for you. I want to be with you. What do you want me to do? And he says, okay, good. Here it all is. And you say, okay, I'm in. Because I love you and I want to follow you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But where that faith is real and genuine, that faith will never be alone. It will bear fruit. It will bear fellowship in our lives. And as Jesus slows us down in this moment, he says, listen, if you really want to do that, you want to take that step to put your faith in me, I would love that. It's going to cost you. Oh, what do you mean it's going to cost? Well, it's going to cost you two things. First of all, then in verse 26, he walks us through the relational cost. There is relational cost to following Jesus. Says it, point blank, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, such strong words, are they not? And they are strong words that sadly are often misunderstood. So let's be clear what he is saying. Is he really saying that we've got to hate our family members like we understand in the English the word hate to mean? I mean, that's confusing if that's what he means, right? I mean, in Luke chapter 27, at chapter 6 verse 27, he says to love our enemies. Am I to love my enemies but hate my family? I mean, how do I do that? How does this work? I've got to love them. My family, I'm sorry, I need to hate you. I mean, this is the same Jesus that calls us to honor our father and mother, to respect them. And something you saw him doing throughout his life. This is the same Jesus that calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. As husbands to literally lay our lives down for our wives in love and mercy and grace as an expression of what Jesus has done for us. And this is the same Jesus that says, wives, see to it that you honor and respect your husband as a result. You love them enough to want to follow them and, and go after them in their lives. This is the same Jesus that says, let the little children come to me. The disciples are trying to shoo them away, but Jesus says, no, 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 let them come to me because I want to bless them. The kingdom of God is for children just like this. And so he encourages the children to come to him so that he may bless them. Is it true then that we're called to hate them? How are we meant to hate our families? How is this meant to work? Well, we have to understand the word hate in English is very different to what it meant in Jewish culture. When we say the word hate in English, it can mean only one thing. It means an emotional response of intense dislike. That's the when we say I hate that, what we mean is I abhor that, I loathe it, I detest it. I really, really strongly dislike that. But in the Hebrew language, it is a rhetorical term that relates to comparison. It's different. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying, listen, when it comes to your mom and your dad, you just got to hate them. You've got to have a strong feeling of dislike towards them. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, listen, compared to me, compared to allegiance to me, compared to a love for me, compared to an affection and ability to follow me, I need to be first. And everybody else in your life, if you're going to follow me, needs to be a very, very, very distant second. Whoever they are. Wife. Mom, dad, brother, and sister, it doesn't matter. If you're going to follow me, I'm going to have to be first in your heart. You're going to have to be all in just for me. 
He doesn't mean then some emotional response. It is a term of comparison. And I want us to be clear on that. But I submit to you, it doesn't always make it any easier. This is hard. I mean, Sovereign Grace now has the privilege of serving in over 40 countries around the world. And in some of the countries that we serve in, when you preach this topic, it means much more cost for them. See, if you preach this in Turkey, where everybody's Muslim, then that individual becomes a Christian, their family will completely shun them. You preach this message in Croatia, where people are very strongly Catholic. When that individual becomes a Christian, their family will completely disown them. They will be written out of their will. They will have nothing to do with them. That family member will be dead to them. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're going to follow me, it might happen. You're going to have to be all in for me. As I've told you before about our friends in Nepal, our brother there who serves so faithfully in the church in Kathmandu, he was telling me some time ago about two girls in his church, 13 and 15. Nepal is a strongly Hindu country. These two girls every week walk five hours to church. So if you are 13 or 15, the next minute you complain that I don't want to get out of bed by 9. There are two people in your age that leave the house about 4 a.m. to get to church on time. And these girls, they stay all day. They actually, they have a church service, they have lunch, they then stay for an evening service, and then after the evening service, they walk home. The challenge they have is when they go home, their dad beats them up because they're Hindu. And he's disgraced by the reality that they want to follow Jesus. Why do they keep doing it? Why every week do they make this journey? Why every week do they succumb to being beaten up? Why every week do they do this? Because they understand, if I'm really going to follow Jesus, he needs to be first in my heart. And I want to be with his people, and I want to sing his praises. I want to hear from his word. I need to be with a different family today. They understood where their allegiance lie. They've understood that It might cost me relationally to follow Jesus. See, we don't face that often in Australia, do we? None of us, as far as I'm aware, are being written out of wills. None of us are being shunned by our family or dead to us because we're here on this morning. But I think we'd be mistaken to think that people are, to some degree, still having this cost them in some ways. Because it can cost us in Australia if we follow this. It's the family member then that is going ahead and getting baptised. Having put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're getting baptized and they're doing it even though they know their parents will actually be offended. Because their parents have a slightly different religion or a slightly different view on things. But they realize, I need to get in the pool and get baptized. And they're doing it anyway because ultimately they're choosing Jesus above even their parents as they made that decision. It's the individual, it's the family member that goes to church even though their spouse hates that each and every week you go to church. But they're doing it because as for me and my life, I'm Jesus's. And the Bible calls me to gather with his saints and I need the saints. And Is this going to cost me? It might do. But I'm Jesus's first. He's my allegiance. Or it's the Christian, the family member who has been asked by other family members to embrace something or celebrate something or watch something or take part in something that sears their conscience. And it sears their conscience because they know it goes against this word. And so they look their family in the eye and they say, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. 
even though they know this might really cost them with their family. See, we're so comfortable in this country, are we not? And so often we don't like anything that could cause us discomfort. But what Jesus is saying is right up front, hey, listen, if you want to be my disciple, heads up, it might cost you sometimes. There's a relational cost to really following me as your Lord and Savior. And then there is this sacrificial cost, he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross. I mean, if ever there was a moment in scripture that you realize following Jesus is not going to be easy, it's surely the moment when he says, hey, listen, you want to follow me? Then take up your cross and follow me. The cross. The cross universally is an emblem of suffering and pain and shame. That doesn't sound like health and wealth gospel to me. It sounds difficult. Sounds painful. Sounds like, hey, uh, uh, what? Brett McCracken in his book Uncomfortable says it this way. He says, the Christian faith has been centered upon an emblem of suffering and shame. And accordingly... The shame and reproach of the cross is fundamental to our journey. Therefore, to be a Christian is to accept the discomfort of a way of life inspired and empowered by a cruel, rugged old cross, a symbol of scorn and degradation. In the ancient world, a cross was not something decorative to cross-stitch or wear, diamond-studded around one's neck. It was a barbaric method of slow death, typically reserved for the worst of criminals among the despised people groups. Crucifixion was used by Greeks and Romans to inflict maximum pain and humiliation on deserving criminals. And now, the way of the cross is ours to follow. My friends, are you aware that's what you signed up for when you've said, I want to follow you, Jesus? Okay, great. Then take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be a life of difficulty. It's going to be a life of pain that's going to involve sacrifice. I mean, I'm aware this is not a party political broadcast. This is probably not a way of growing your church. I often think if Jesus was leading a church today in Australia, not many people would want to be in it. This is too hard. I don't fancy this. Just make, give me, I just want a pizzas at the end. I mean, this is just hard stuff. But this is what he is telling us. Here in the Western world, I think we need to hear this again and again and again. Do we not? That true Christianity is going to cost me. See, it's my experience that as Christians, we are fine with the Savior bit. We love that. It is getting out of jail free. I am totally thrilled that you died in my place. Thank you genuinely so much. And we're even okay with the following Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior bit. It's like, I get that. I love you. I'm all in. I want to do that. But where we begin to balk, I think, is when Jesus says, okay, you're all in. Wonderful. Then you see that cross there. Take it up and follow me. What? What? I think I'll look for a different church. I need something easier. I think that's when we begin to talk. When Jesus starts to talk, talk about the cross bit. And why is that? Well, because as Christians, particularly in the West, I think we love ease. I think we love comfort. We love things to be plush and pleasant. Sign me up for that. I want that walk. I'm sad about the people in Nepal. I'm sad about the people in Turkey. It must be very difficult in the Middle East. But for me, I would just like it pretty cruisy. Because I'm different. I'm worth it. And I need my comforts. We find it hard. I know we do. I find it hard. 
But what we must understand as Christians and what we must expect as we truly seek to follow Jesus is that this is not going to be easy. My friends, it is not easy to sacrifice autonomy. And yet that's what you do when you become a Christian. When you truly bow the knee to Jesus and you understand my life now has been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. I bow my knee and I take you as my king. Whatever you say, I will do. There's a sacrifice to that. It means you can't just do whatever you want anymore. There's a sacrifice involved in that. There is a sacrifice of preferences and comforts when you become a Christian. It is not always easy, is it? To give up preferences, to give up comforts. I mean, I'm grateful to the Lord that I'm preaching this message today on Mother's Day because I think if there's one set of individuals that regularly give up their preferences and comforts, it is mums, and in particular, it is mums of preschool children. If you are a mother of a preschool child, you are my hero. I mean, preschool mothers, they are worthy of much praise. It is incredible what they do. And if you're not sure whether they're worthy of praise, then ask them if you can borrow their preschool children for just 24 hours. And you will be desperate to give them back by the end. It's hard. But no one said following Jesus was going to be easy. This is all part of it. Of what it means to seek to lay our lives down for our kids and serve them. Even when they're not exactly like giving us a lot back, right? Particularly for you mums of preschool kids, it's not the most rewarding thing to change nappies again and again and again. Every day, there they are. Your husbands get to go on vacation with you. They're having a holiday. You're not. You're doing the same things you do every single day. But you do it because you love the Lord. There is, there's a cost sometimes to following Jesus and doing what he's called us to do. I think for you singles as well, very mindful of you this week as well. There's no doubt that for you, following Jesus comes with, with sacrificing preferences and comforts. I'm aware that for a number of you singles, you would love to be married. And I'm aware for many of you, you've got plenty of offers coming in from unbelievers. And you sacrifice that. Because I don't believe it's right to be unequally yoked. I don't believe it's right for me to be joined with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. The Bible's clear and so I'll sacrifice that. Is that sacrifice real? Yes. Is that cost real? Oh, yes. And as a local church, we applaud that. And respect that. And recognize for you, that's an expression of what it costs to follow Jesus. There is sacrifice for all of us in time and energy and resources when it comes to following Jesus. And what Jesus is helping us see right up front is, listen, I told you so. It was never going to be easy. This is not a day out of the beach with me. And right up front, we might then reassess. Well, do I really want in? And Jesus is saying, you should reassess. That's point two. The weighing of that cost. See, Jesus himself is saying, listen, having challenged my hearers now with these two sayings of what it is to follow him, he now uses these two parables to really ask us the question, do you need to weigh the cost? You need to work out, do you really want this? He's aware that in the crowd, in this moment, there are many, many people that are hanger on us. As he's preaching to the crowd, everybody wants to be with Jesus. Have you noticed that? They're all, they love him. You can heal people. This is amazing. 
do that, do that food trick again, because I'm peckish. You know, pray over this food, because I really want that. They love that. And so he wants to help them see, listen, you love it? Great. If you're going to truly follow me, take up your cross. Now let's see who's really in. And he asks them, listen, you need to weigh it. This is what he says in verse 28 to 32. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Listen, these two short parables essentially equal exactly the same point. What Jesus is trying to say here is, listen, in life's big decisions, you must weigh the cost before you make it. This is a big deal. You must think about whether you really want in. I mean, imagine the builder of a tower. Explains then this dude who's building a tower. It's probably a tower that's protecting his house or protecting his vineyard. And he's saying, no, no one should be like just going ahead and building a tower. You work out, have I got enough money and enough stuff to actually build this thing? Because if I just build a foundation, it's going to be a complete waste of time. Or imagine the king that he's thinking about going out to war against another king. He's got to work out, well, he's got 20,000 men and I've got 10,000 men. Do I actually want to do this or do I want to find another route to make peace with him? In life's big decisions, we must always weigh the cost before we press into it. And what he's saying, listen, to all would-be followers of me in the crowd in this moment, you need to think about this. Because it will cost you to follow me. Don't just come in like, oh yeah, I really like you. No, no. Think. Stop. Think. There will be relational cost. There will be sacrificial cost. Just in case there's anybody doubting it in the room, he circles back in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be a disciple. To follow Jesus really does cost. They're not my words. They're just what Jesus is telling us. I'm just the messenger. It's what he is preaching to us right here in this text. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wonderfully said it this way. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Again, that's not often quoted by preachers. That's the truth. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Listen, in one sense, becoming a Christian is absolutely free. It is. It's a wonderful gift of grace. To become a Christian, to be forgiven of your sin and redeemed by God, to come into a relationship with God, to be adopted into the family of God, to know heaven is your home, it is absolutely scot-free. It is a gift that he freely gives to us. And in one sense, then becoming a Christian is totally free. What do you bring to it? Any money? Nope. Any gifts? Doesn't matter. You, you bring your sin. You bring what you exchange for the gift. But that's it. It's completely free. And we must understand that. 
But what we must also understand as Christians is becoming a Christian in another sense will cost you absolutely everything. Because when you truly receive that gift and you unwrap it and you realize, Lord, I've taken you as my savior and as my king. Well, then your life's been bought with a price. You're no longer your own, you're his. And you'll want to live with him. You'll want to be with him. You'll want to follow his word because the Holy Spirit starts to live in your life. And actually, it's something you want. But we need to understand, in one sense, becoming a Christian is free. But in another sense, it will cost us everything. It could cost us everything relationally. It could cost us everything sacrificially. And Jesus knows that. So right up front, he wants to say, hey, listen, you should think about this. You should wait. Is this what you want for your life? I was 20 years old when I made that decision to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I grew up in a Christian home, but prior to being 20, I wasn't sure if I really fancied the gospel, to be quite frank. I was, as John Bunyan says, Mr. Facing Both Ways. I faced the world and the church. They both seem good, and I'm like bidding to work out which one's going to give me my best offer. But at 20 years old, my life came crashing down. And for the first time, the love of God became genuinely amazing to me. And actually choosing to follow Jesus didn't feel like a sacrifice at all. All I was besotted by was the sacrifice he had done for me. And I knew at that point I needed to be all in for Jesus if this was the case. My life has been bought with a price. So Lord, whatever you want me to do in my life, I'm all in. I had no idea what he wanted me to do in my life. But it was a decision of heart at 20 that I made. And quite frankly, 27 years on, I've never looked back from. I'm just amazed that I get to be a Christian at all. Heard a story just this week of a man in India who was preaching to some Indians. And he noticed that one of the guys raising his hands had three fingers that were chopped off at the knuckles. And he said to him afterwards, oh, brother, what what happened to your hand? And he said, oh, in India, not, not everybody finds it easier to be a Christian and I've been beaten up at different times and they attract, they attach electrodes to my hands and batteries and they've burnt my fingers off. And the American guy said to him, brother, that, that's so awful. And he said, no, it's a privilege to be counted worthy to sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. When you truly know Jesus and you love Jesus, it doesn't seem like the same sacrifice that is being presented to us right here. But Jesus wants us to know it will cost you. But he does want us to know that it will be worth it. And that's my third and final point, just briefly, the worth of that cost. See, when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the privilege of knowing that your name is written in the book of life. That you're forgiven and redeemed and that heaven is your home. It is a beautiful reality, but there's more than even that too that takes place when you truly follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he tells us here in verses 34 and 35 about it. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use to either of the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, let me explain. I want you to hear. There are two things, two great worths that he's talking about here and in the context of chapter 14 about what it really means to take up this cost. Is it worth it? Oh, absolutely it is. Number one, it's worth it because there is a clear and present blessing 
that comes our way in the here and now when we make this decision. And all that is wrapped up in the words, salt is good. It's not immediately obvious, but I submit to you, it is pretty obvious when you see it. He's saying salt is good. Let me explain it. I love hot chips. I think of it as a vegetable potato. I mean, it's just, it's, it's basically how I, how I live. I mean, I like five a day, different chips from, you know, McDonald's and Burger King, and we can vary. Um, just recently, yesterday, we were actually spending some time with the Erasmus family in, in Lake Macquarie, and they said, oh, we've got to take you to this chip shop. You are talking my language. We went and bought this wonderful bag of chips, hot chips. They are great. But here's the thing about hot chips. They are nice by themselves, but potentially a bit bland. So what do you do? You put lots of salt on them. Salt has the innate ability to make what is bland somewhat tasty and flavorsome. It's the gift of salt. Salt is a seasoning. You put it on bland things and it makes it zing. It makes it taste so much better. It makes you want to eat more and more. That's the gift of salt. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, a good follower of mine, somebody who's truly following me as Lord and Savior, they would be like salt to those around them. They would be like a good salt, a good seasoning on their relationships. So in their families, in their workplaces, in their communities, spending time with them would be like adding a good salt to a good dish. Listen, that doesn't mean, and to be clear, that every Christian is going to be the life and soul of every party and event you go to. Okay, you can't all be Jen Sisme, you know. Not every Christian is going to be able to walk into a room and light up the room. That is a gift of grace. However, what he is saying here is for every Christian, as they truly follow him as Lord and Savior, no matter what personality type they are, they will be like a good salt to the lives of those around them. And my friends as Christians, you know it when you see it, do you not? You spend time with people and their speech and the way they talk. It is like a good salt. It is encouraging and kind and joyful. To be around them, you feel built up. It's like a good salt. Their very lives and the way they live, they're grateful and they're gracious and compassionate. So you want to invite them over because you're aware to be around them. It's just an encouraging experience. And they use their gifts and abilities around the church in a way that is generous and humble and servant-hearted. Thrilled that they even get the opportunity to do so. It's like a good salt to the family, is it not? These individuals that are truly following Jesus, they can't help it. Their life and their speech and the use of their gifts will be like salt to those around them. Their lives will have the ability to make lives that are sometimes bland, be zesty and joyful and flavorsome. It's wonderful. Does this mean then that we can never lose our saltiness as we follow Jesus? No, quite clearly in the text we can. See, salt itself actually can never lose its taste. Salt is salt. But salt can be diluted impurities begin to come into salt and it's then that actually with its impurities it doesn't taste like anything anymore. And in fact, it's useless. You can put it on a mule pile but it won't do anything. You throw it out, it's not going to work as fertilizer. It's just useless. And Jesus is saying, hey listen, if we stop following him, that's what happens to us. We're not effective in the same way anymore. But if we do follow him, there is clear and present blessing attached to this. My friends, think about that opportunity. 
When we count the cost and follow Jesus, what we become like is a salt to those around us. As the Holy Spirit lives in our heart and as we take up our cross and follow him, as we obey his word, our speech brings encouragement where there isn't encouragement. Our lives start to bring a joy where there isn't a joy. Our gifts start to be used in a way that everybody benefits and the body gets built up in love. And when we do that and when we respond to the Lord like that, I mean, what a privilege we have to do something that Jesus himself so clearly loves. That's why this is here. When we use our gifts and abilities and our speech and our attitudes to bless those around us, quite clearly Jesus is sitting there going, I love that. You're being like salt to those around you. You're bringing zestiness and seasoning and taste to situations that can outside of that be planned. What a blessing. What a clear and present blessing it is to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, even as we count the cost. Likewise, there is also a clear and eternal blessing attached to following Jesus. And this is something that has been talked about and implied again and again and again all the way through the Gospel of Luke. As Randy Alcorn once said, we are all made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven And it's so true. I mean, in the Gospel of Luke, we've already seen so many glimpses of that wonderful reality, have we not? The fact that heaven is our home. The one day we will stand with him in the heavenly realms. That's why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus himself tells us that we need to be alert and active as good and faithful servants. Why? Because you never know when he's coming back. You never know when he might return. And so he wants us to be dressed and ready for action. He wants us to keep our lamps always burning. Because you never know when all eternity may be brought to a close in a moment and judgment may come. You never know when Jesus is coming back. But what you do know, clearly pervaded for us through the Gospel of Luke, is that when he comes and he judges the living and the dead, There'll be great rewards and commendations for all those who have followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Do you not think of that as slightly scandalous? I mean, let's be real. We bring to our salvation our sin. Full stop. He brings everything. And then he gives us gifts and gives us opportunities. And then when we walk in them, in his strength, he says, and I'm going to reward you of that. Do you not think of that as scandalous? It is scandalous, but it is the way he has designed it to be. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. He's talking about judging Christians. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know, for many years of my life as a Christian, I was really nervous about that last day and this idea of bringing to light the things now hidden in darkness. I just imagined, you know, is there going to be like a big screen about my life and the whole church is going to be gathered and we're like, well, let me tell you what he was like behind the scenes, even when he was by himself. Let's show the video, run the video. I was really nervous about how, that sounds really awful, to bring to all the secrets and put them out. Friends, look again. He's saying to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Why? So that each one will receive his 
commendation from God. It's not about punishment. Jesus Christ has paid for the punishment in full for all those that know him as Lord and Savior. He's bringing to life the secrets so he can say, check out what they did. None of you ever knew. But I'm going to reward them in this moment for them. I'm going to commend them for this moment. I want to applaud. What is it going to be like to hear the hands of the one who hung in your place clapping and commending you for things that you've done in secret? Wayne Grudem tells us that when we finally see the Lord face to face, our hearts will want for nothing else. And I think he's right. But Jesus says, although your hearts may want for nothing else, I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to commend you. And I'm going to reward you. For all the times you lived like salt and light in the earth, I'm going to commend you. For all the things that no one ever saw, I'm going to commend you. For the things that people did see, maybe even clapped, I'm going to clap louder. So, is it worth it? Is the cost worth it? Oh my, a thousand percent. Yes, it is. To truly follow Jesus means that you know for sure that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. To truly follow Jesus means that we get to experience a clear and present blessing here and now. As we know his smile in our lives, as we seek to operate like his salt in this earth, and it brings with eternal blessing, where one day we stand before him and he will look you in the eye and say, Hey, listen, well done. Well done. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. My friends, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to cut straight with you. Because Jesus is cutting straight with you. Following him will cost you everything. Your life will be turned upside down. You can't be half in, half out. He wants you all. But I want to encourage you too, it will be totally worth it. To know that you're forgiven and redeemed and adopted and heaven is your home. To know whose you are and who you are and be able to bless him. And to run headlong towards that day where you'll stand before him and hear his well done. Is it worth it? Absolutely. So I want to exhort you to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And know this life for yourself. I was 20 years old when I did that. I've never looked back for a day. Neither will you. And if you are already a Christian here today, I want to encourage you, church, listen, this is important. Never again be surprised when following Jesus actually costs you. Because he always said it would. It can be so easy to get sucked in and seduced into thinking, particularly in first world countries, that surely following Jesus is going to be easy and comfortable and plush and everybody will think I'm really cool. Probably not. Following Jesus is going to be difficult. It's going to be sacrificial. It's going to cost you. And it will be totally worth it. So keep looking up. Keep running hard. Oh, Father, use this ransom life in any way you choose. And keep running for that day. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that you took a moment with the crowd and a moment with us to address us in frank reality about what it's going to cost us to follow you.
Lord, thank you for opening our eyes afresh this morning. To helping us see what this all means. And Lord, I pray for all of us this morning. As we genuinely assess whether we want this or not. I pray for each and every one of us. Our response would be. Lord. We're all in. We're all in for following you. We want to take up our cross and follow you. They want there to be no turning back. And Lord, would we be amazed that we get to do this at all? Amazed. And we all glory go to you.